But now I know this is about the work of the Spirit, and so I know I can't persuade you of anything. I know that I can't argue you into anything. I know that if God chooses to act, then he chooses to act. The wind blows where it pleases. And so what do we need to do? We need to pray. Is that right? Do you want to? If we don't have to. Would you like to? I would. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus Christ, many of us know and can testify that you are present here with us this afternoon, present in the power of the Spirit. So use your words, these words here from Romans and elsewhere, use them to cut away the sin and the complacency within. We pray this in the name of our precious Jesus. Amen. Okay, I wonder if I'm describing you here in these words. This is a bit of an insight I wrote about five years ago. I wonder if it's you. You say, my resolve usually lasts about three days. I hear that God wants me to change. I know there are some things that I need to change, but I genuinely doubt change is possible. You know what? I can't even imagine praying or what it might mean to start praying with my best friend, let alone shape a new character that actually bears resemblance to Jesus. I don't know what life would look like if I cut out some exclusive language, for example, jokes that cut people out or gossip that seeks the same. I know about sexual purity. I know what God wants, but I just can't give up what I know isn't right, partly because I look around and I think to myself, does anybody actually bother anyway? I've tried to tell somebody at work or at university about Jesus, but I couldn't and I still can't. Nothing is going to change. If I ask myself honestly, I'm a self-cynic. All, all cynics usually are, by the way. But I feel stuck. Now, I'm not sure if that touches you in any way. Maybe. Maybe not. Or maybe not yet. But I wonder if it's us. Outside the home I grew up in, in West Ride, there's a block of concrete, which is a memento to my childhood, a record of the heady days of the 1970s when I looked like this. <laughs> oh, how were heady days indeed. Right to the bowl haircut. The council outside my home in West Side, they put down some soft concrete to lay down the footpath. And so there, to this day, after my little scrubbing, set in concrete, is the note, Justin was here. That's true, you know, we all know that concrete is soft and pliant for a time. But after that, it becomes hard and fixed and, you know, it'll never change. But the only thing you can really do is dig it up. Now, stay with me on this. I wonder if some of us feel like a block of set concrete, which is that we feel fixed, we feel set, we think, I'm never going to change to be the kind of person that God knows I ought to become. I'm not really expecting change. I'm not even really looking out for it. You could say something like this. I remember when I was young and I was kind of pliant to God when I was perhaps when I first became a Christian or when I was younger, I could have gone anywhere and done anything. I had joy in my heart and I was quite passionate when it came to speaking about Jesus to my friends. But now for whatever reason, I just feel stuck. I feel kind of set in stone, like concrete. I'm nervous that I'm not going to become the person that God knows I ought to become. In fact, I'm not even nervous. Now, that's set concrete. 
Actually, my question is, I wonder if it's not concrete, but kind of set clay. Kind of not as tough as concrete, perhaps more brittle than that. But I want to say that life in the Spirit is one where God leads you to change. Life in the Spirit is the new dynamic in the, the life of the believer, just like, just like this, just like some kind of liquid that you can inject into set concrete to make it soft and pliant again. Kind of like wet sand. Like dampening some concrete, or maybe the brittle clay, somehow making the brittle hardness of it go and making it soft and pliant again is the work of the Spirit in our life. And you know what you have to do? All you have to do is be willing to submit to Him and His working in your life. Today, seventh point in the doctrinal statement, the indwelling and work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. And that's worth just getting your mind around that phrase, isn't it? It's beautiful. God in us. The Spirit in us. What a powerful truth. Can you see it in your mind's eye? Or rather, by faith, can you see it? Or recognize Him in your life? God within you. For you, yes. God for you, yes. But also God within you in the power of his spirit. By the way, not just indwelling, like Sunday lunch late in the afternoon, but God working within you to lead you powerfully to become the kind of person that he wants you to become, the kind of person he's created you to be. Can I say straight up, this topic is controversial. Some of you have seen the post and said, I want to come today. And you might have come because you think something like this. Let's see if EU actually believes in the Holy Spirit. My answer is, of course they do. That's why they believe in object one, leading people to Christ. Because we know that only God can actually actively lead someone to Christ. You say, okay, they believe in the Spirit. Does does some of you have the Holy Spirit? My answer is, of course they do. A Christian, if I read my Bible correctly, is a a Christian is a person who has the Spirit. You ask the Apostle Paul, what's a Christian? And he might answer, a person who has the Spirit. Are there people in Christ here today? People who say, Jesus is Lord? Yes, there are people who have the Spirit. I take it there's no other way to be Christian. You say, yes, but are there some here who are filled with the Spirit? I want to say, of course there are. I see, in the people I know here at EU, I see love, joy, peace. Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I see people strengthened to submit their lives to God. That's object two of you. I see the Spirit calling you. (laughs) I see people, object three, who are interested in Christian service at home and abroad. So I see the Holy Spirit working in people's lives, filling them to move for Christian service at home and abroad. I take it the part of the controversy is that people have certain criteria by which they might see proof of the Spirit's work. For example, you might want to say it's in kind of worship or music, and a particular kind of music is where you say the Spirit is now manifest. Or the manifestation of certain kinds of gifts, or the feeling of presence of God, sometimes brought on by some really powerful speaker. You're not going to get that here this afternoon. Or a miracle, or a thousand of them. But I want to say, if I can put it this way, the weight of Scripture is that the work of the Spirit is about a person simply declaring, believing in their heart that Jesus Christ is Lord, 1 Corinthians 12. 
And that also that believer living rightly and obeying God in love, serving and building up God's church in love and together with the saints, cutting out sin and complacency within. That's the work of the Spirit, or the way to the work of the Spirit in the Scriptures. The work of the Spirit is about the Christian's life, that's capital L, that is the life received, point number one in your outlines, and it's also about the ongoing Christian life, that's small L, or the life Live small, subtle difference there. You can see on your outline. You have to use your brain for one second, but only one second. It's about the Christian's life and about the ongoing Christian life. Point number one in your outlines. The Christian's life. The Bible says that because of Jesus, we have life. That's capital L, capital I, capital F, capital E. That's caps. Life. And you have it in Christ in abundance, John 10.10. 10. We have it by Jesus, yes, and affected for you in the Spirit, handed to you. I've got to read through John's Gospel. And I want to say that in Christ, that life is fixed and secure like set concrete. That's the thing that's set, by the way, because of the sufficient work of Christ on the cross. You've dealt with that in the last couple of weeks. But you are connected to that work by the indwelling of the Spirit, or by the work of the Spirit, or by the Spirit of life. Look at Romans 8, verse 1 there on your outlines. Look at it. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I'm glad that's set in concrete. No condemnation. You know what no condemnation means? It means no condemnation. None at all. No anger, no fury, no wrath, no rage, no nothing like that. I take it not even a kind of disappointment. Not for those in Christ Jesus. And this is fixed and you can be confident of it. Why is there no condemnation? There's no condemnation for a specific reason, verse 2. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. He already has. If I can put it this way, the law of sin and death has been trumped. You play 500? Trumped. (laughs) The law of sin and death is this, Deuteronomy 30. If you disobey, you die. The wages of sin is death made elsewhere in Romans. But the law of the spirit of life is this, that in Christ Jesus, by the work of the spirit, I have life. Capital L, capital I, capital F, capital E. I'm his, he is mine, and I'm free. From fear, the fear of condemnation. This is fixed. So Charles Wesley can put his fist up in the air and say words like this. No condemnation, now I dread. No condemnation, now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Great words, aren't they? Got some nodding. How has the spirit of life set you free? Well, it's got something to do with what God has done by sending his own son. God did what humans in in their natural state or in the flesh could not do. Verse 3, for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. I think what's being said here, and this is going to become clear when we get to the Deuteronomy and the Ezekiel and the Jeremiah reference. The law doesn't help. Torah, the law doesn't help. Something more powerful is needed than simply laws to actually make you free from condemnation. If I can put it this way, hear me on this. Law helps you to be right with God, but 
the way oxygen can be used to put out a fire. It can't. It only makes the problem worse. Something much bigger is needed than the law, and it's the indwelling of the Spirit and the walking according to the Spirit that's needed. Verse 3. By sending his own Son the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, what he did was he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. I take it at the beginning of verse 3. God has done this. That's what's being said here. I deserve condemnation for my life in the flesh. That is my life opposed to God or without God. My life kind of out on my own, like Adam, taking the matters into my own hands. I deserve condemnation for that. But what he does is he enters our world. And in the flesh, he takes my life in the flesh or my life without God and he takes it to the tomb, to the grave. And he leaves it there. So what the law is required to do, if a person live a life, lived in love for God and with God, that has been fully met in us through Christ's work and through the spirit of life and with the indwelling of the spirit, the life I now live as one who walks according to the spirit. So it's in him and through him and by him I have this fixed and beautiful, secure relationship with God. Take a look at this picture. There are happy holiday makers at the beach, yes? No, I've just put your mind in some other place, right? But take a closer look. Can you see there? Oh, yes, that's a shark. <laughs> One whopping great big tiger shark. Now, I find it interesting, don't you, that you're absolutely entirely safe from that shark, literally two centimetres onto the beach. You couldn't be safer there than you are here from a shark. Is that true? Couldn't be safe. You are safe, if I can put it this way, from the condemnation of God on the beach of Christ's work, you've been set free. And the key here, I guess, you've got to find out in a moment, is those who have the indwelling of the Spirit, those who walk according to the Spirit, are those who, if I can put it this way, stay on the beach. I'm not trying to put you off water. I know you love the water. Go with the illustration. Those who walk according to the Spirit are those who say, I'm on God's side. Those who have the indwelling work of the Spirit, I'm on his side. And we have an obligation not to walk into the water or live life according to the flesh. We have an obligation. So the one who has the indwelling work of the Spirit in their life is one who has no condemnation in Jesus Christ and then God works within them to mould and shape them. Let me give you some highlights, like cricket highlights, right? Indwelling of the Spirit highlights in the Scriptures. I don't want to just stay in Romans 8. I'm moving off Romans 8 for a second. Let me tell you something here in this little box on the bottom of your outline there on the left-hand side. I want to give you something of a picture of what God decided to do when he promised to hand out his spirit to you, to all people. Just give you a little snapshot. You can write down some notes to see what's happening here. See, Moses quotes God in Deuteronomy chapter 5. And in Deuteronomy chapter 5, it's God who says, he says, oh, that, that, did God just say, oh? Does God say, oh, does God have language like that? Listen to this. Deuteronomy chapter 5, God says, oh, that their hearts would be inclined to fear me and to keep all my command. Does God say that? Oh, that their hearts would be inclined. Yes, he does. 
Moses expresses a desire in Numbers 11 when he says, I wish, I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets and the Lord would put his spirit on all of them. It's this kind of yearning in the Old Testament that people would be inclined to God and that all the Lord's people would have the spirit on them. But we know when we read our Old Testaments that the history of Israel is a history of people inclined to the law but not necessarily inclined to obedience. The prophets lament the lack of Israel's obedience to God, but they prophesy, and you're going to see that even more clearly in the next box on the right-hand side, they prophesy that God will send his spirit to indwell. Joel chapter 2 says, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people, young and old. You know, I will be with them all. And it is in Jesus Christ, in God's spirit-filled Messiah, that we have this. I note in Luke chapter 4, that Jesus returns from the desert, just like Israel returns from the desert. He returns from the desert, filled with the Spirit, inclined to love God and obey God and perfectly keep his promises. He comes back. He is a Spirit-filled one. And he promises in John chapter 3, verses 5 to 8, as you learned last week, that unless someone is born of the Spirit, he simply cannot be part of God's great kingdom. It has to not just be kind of this rational, okay, I'm going to figure out how to obey God, but it's got to be God indwelling within you to move you to do it. He's got to awaken that within you. And so you see in Acts chapter 2, the beginning or the start of that promise being fulfilled where God rests on his people, leading to the point where Paul makes the challenge to live that life. Oh, that their hearts will be inclined. Oh, that the Spirit will be upon them, says the Apostle Paul. Walk according to the Spirit, for you have him in your life, indwelling. I guess the point of those verses would be something like this. God is indeed with you, with you, present now in you, in him, in the spirit. He didn't just die and rise again, rise to life again, and then say, I hope you can figure it all out on your own. Just put your mind to it and you'll figure it out. He says, no, we have the spirit of life which has set us free. Okay, now what does all this mean? It means that we are, shock horror, obligated. We have a duty. Point number two in your outlines. The Christian life. The Christian life, the one you now live. See that stuff on the left-hand side of the page, no condemnation in the spirit of life. That's not a door you shut, right? I have no condemnation. I'm right with God. Today, as, as, as much as I was the day Christ died, yes, but that's not a door you shut. That's a door you open. And you walk through into the room or the open field of loving and serving Jesus Christ. And the Christian life is soft and compliant. I use that word because it's so countercultural. It's soft and pliant to the work of God in your life. Verse 14, you, know, you are led by the Spirit, which is all about knowing God, obeying Him, trusting Him, like a son who calls out, Abba Father. What do they say? Such outrageously intimate language. Like a son who calls out, Abba Father. All that goes with that is the work of the Spirit in your life. 
There's a clear challenge in these verses and a promise in Galatians 5, a similar passage, where God leads you and changes you as a father, his son, or a different metaphor. He bears fruit in your life. In other words, he goes to work on you. I'm selling every possession I have on eBay at the moment, putting my life on the lawn. And I sold an antique piece of furniture that was given to me that I didn't care too much about. I just kind of put stuff on it and walked away. You know, the kind of piece of furniture that someone gives you that you can't bring yourself to give away. But my life was going on the lawn, so I put it on eBay. This guy came and bought it and he picked it up. And he was your classic, old, lover of antique, a craftsman. And he came and he looked at this item and he said, he started salivating over it, saying, oh, this is exactly what I've been looking for. And he tells me how he's going to go to work on it. He's going to uh, take his time. He's going to use all his tools, all his heart. He's going to take several months, sand it back. He's got a French polisher. He says, this is going to come up a treat, he says. <laughs> I said to him, oh, can you show me a photo of it? When he's done, I'd like to really see it. He said, I'll do that. I'll do that especially for you. you know? I felt like it was um, in Seinfeld, you know, the guy who takes care of Jerry's car. I felt like this is going to happen. And I said to him, can you show me a photo? He says, yes. I say, well, send it to me in a couple of days. I'd love to see it. And he says, a couple of days? This is going to take months of hard work. And this is a classic craftsman. Well, God is a craftsman on you in the power and the work of the Spirit. Like a potter with soft clay, he goes to work on you. It may take some time, but he still goes to work. <laughs> Let me show you what the Christian life, the life lived, looks like. In the next passage in Romans, there's a contrast between life according to the Spirit, or the flesh, and life according to the Spirit. He says in verse 5, For those who live according to the flesh, that's you, they have their mind set on the flesh. That makes sense, doesn't it? The flesh is a life without God. I don't think about God. I'm, I'm on my own without God. I'm a part of the world opposed to God. Well, those people who don't have God in their life, they have their mindset on a world without God. That's the way they arrange it. Those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Those who have God in their life, they say, what does God want for me? Consequences, verse 6. To set the mind on flesh, that is death. Now, Paul pulls no punches. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. Shalom. Verse 7, for the mind that is set on flesh, what is it? It's hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh, they cannot please God. And so we find by inference that those who live according to the Spirit are in fact friendly to God. Isn't all of this just a way of saying, if you're Christian, you know, if you're in Christ then what that means is you love Jesus and you want him to love and shape and change you. Those who are not in Christ, or not those who are in the flesh, are hostile to God. So here's the question. Are you resistant to God? Uh, kind of set concrete and unwilling for him to change or challenge you. Which are you? 
So it's worth asking that question, taking a spiritual inventory. Which of you here, you, you're one or the other, in Apostle Paul's language? I love how in verses 9 to 11, the Apostle Paul is able to say to the church in Rome, he's able to say, that top line there, that's not you. Go away. <laughs> it's not you. You, verse 9, you are not of the flesh, but in the Spirit. If in fact the Spirit of God dwells within you. And he says, you are not controlled by this life. You've changed, he says to them. You have swapped sides and you're in. You have the Spirit because you belong to him. And that means in verses 10 to 11, you can see it on your outlines, in 10 to 11, it means, yes, you will die. Yes. We all die because we're born into Adam because of sin. Yes, that's true. You could say, in fact, you could say the body is dead because of sin. But that does not stop your spirit from being alive. In fact, the Spirit is life in Christ Jesus. Apostle Paul bears this out. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day because of the work of God in your life. Even though we'll die, yet the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead will also raise our mortal bodies, verse 11, which means that we can yearn for the world that God has created for us. What does all this mean now? What does it all mean for now? It means that you're free and obligated. To live this new life with the indwelling and the work of the Spirit. It means you have an obligation, a debt. Verse 12. Get your eyes on verse 12 for a moment. Verse 12. So then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors. Not to the flesh. Oh, no. To live according to the flesh. No. Verse 11. We are to put to death the misdeeds or the deeds of the body. Those things that don't belong to God, says the Apostle, you put them to death. Such strong language, isn't it? Those who are in the Spirit have got to kill something. It's quite shocking to even say, isn't it? What do they have to kill? Those things in their life that do not please God. To use the language of Romans 6 in particular, Christ has taken your sin, he's taken it to the tomb, and he's left it there. So the obligation of a person who has the indwelling work of the Spirit is to leave that sin there and to walk out of the tomb with a resurrected new life in Christ Jesus, wanting to please, love, and serve him. That's what will happen to a person filled with the Spirit, a person who has life in him. This is the life lived with God, the life lived in the Spirit. And it's dynamic. And it is about right and wrong and about choosing wisely and not choosing poorly. It's about how you view yourself. The Apostle Paul says in verses 14, you need to view yourself like a son. In other words, in the Old Testament language, like an heir. An heir of every good thing that the Lord has for us. You can see it in verse 15 in particular. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry intimately, by which we cry, Abba, Father. Just like Jesus, when he was about to suffer, 
before dying on the cross and yet doing his Father's will in the power of the Spirit, we have the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Verse 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ, drawing from rich imagery from the Old Testament of, 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 of God's people being inheritors of all that is beautiful in God's creation and according to his promise, view yourself that way if you are in the Spirit. Be one, verse 14, who is led by the Spirit. In other words, a person who says to God, I want you to help me to love you more to obey you in an extraordinary way, trust you more deeply. I want you to lead me that way. I know um, whenever I, before I had a child, I used to always not like it when a speaker would mention their son. It's like, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> had that before. But it's funny how you just can't help it. <laughs> uh, my son is a bit over a year old and he took his first steps two days ago. But I tell you, um, Tuesday's crowd didn't hear this because he hadn't done it yet. <laughs> I tell you, there's nothing like standing there with your boy with this huge, broad smile across his face, and you've got your arms out, and he's just taking one or two paces for about 50 centimetres or so, and you grab him by the hands and you take him another set of steps, and you keep leading him forward to you. I find it extraordinary that in Hosea chapter 11, God says of Israel, I love them with extraordinary human kindness. I led them with cords of human kindness and ties of love. He said, like a father leads his son is how I led Israel. And in Hosea chapter 11, he says, so I can't understand why they wouldn't take my leading. I can't understand why they wouldn't. Walk another way. I don't get that. Because as a father leads his son, so the Lord is leading you to love and serve and obey him. Here and elsewhere, he's describing the Christian life, the one that you can have, provided, of course, one thing. You notice that in the text? We always slide over it right at the end of verse 17. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. That's a shock. Provided we suffer with him. It's a shock because often we hear people who talk about the work of the Spirit as though it's the victorious life. The Spirit, then you power forward with victory. But the Apostle says the person who has the work of the Spirit is the person who says, yes, I'll follow my Lord to the cross. It's death first before we are glorified. We don't necessarily suffer, and I'm very thankful for that. But I take it when the chips are down, am I for Jesus? Am I taking up my cross daily and following him? For if I do, then it means I am empowered by the Spirit. You've got to get the timing right. Suffer now, glorified later. Can I take you through some highlights from the work of the Spirit in the Scriptures? God leading us. The Old Testament is a record of people with Torah, with law, but not obeying it. And the reason why is because it's written on stone out there, whereas sin is written on the human heart. The prophets lament this, 
but they prophesy a time when they get reversed. So in Jeremiah 31, he says, there's going to be a new covenant where the Spirit will be written on the hearts of my people. And I'll take their sin and remove it from them and forgive their sins and their wickedness. And the promise in Jeremiah 31 is that the Spirit of the Lord will be written on their hearts. Oh, that my people will be inclined to fear me. The new covenant is where God promises to work in the life of his people. And Ezekiel 36, it's even clearer. God says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take out their heart of stone, their set concrete, and I'm going to give them a heart of flesh, a soft heart to him. The work of the risen Lord Jesus and the pouring out of his spirit is the promise that this will be worked out in the life of the believer. And that's understood all the way through the New Testament. So you can see in some of those references. The first one is not there on the outline. I changed it after speaking to somebody on Tuesday. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, anybody who says Jesus is Lord cannot say so without the Spirit of God. So have I got the Spirit? The Apostle Paul is speaking to people who are arguing about who has which manifestation of the Spirit and who is more spiritual. And the Apostle Paul undercuts the entire argument by saying, put your hand up and you say, Jesus is Lord. The only way you can say that is by the Spirit. But in Ephesians 1.17, Paul, the Apostle Paul says he asks God that he'll give the people in Ephesus a spirit of wisdom and revelation that they might know God better. The work of the Spirit in your life is that you might know him better. I find it fascinating in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 to 19, that Paul prays on his knees that God would strengthen the life of the believers there, that strengthen them, their hearts, that Christ might dwell in their hearts by faith. It's uh, one of those paradoxes, you know, we really believe that, that God works his strength through weakness. But Paul says, I pray that your hearts might be strengthened so that Christ may dwell within you and that you might know the kind of love, together with the saints, in the power of the Spirit, you might know the kind of love that defies measurement, that's that good, is the work of the Spirit in your life. Or Ephesians 5, verses 18, the Apostle Paul says, Go on being filled with the Spirit. Uh, isn't that a beautiful metaphor, by the way? <coughs> to be filled is a beautiful metaphor, right? Filled and up and overflowing. But to be filled with the Spirit, what a beautiful truth. He says, Go on being filled with the Spirit instead of being drunk. Go on being filled with the Spirit, speaking to each other, giving to each other, singing to each other, and being appropriately submissive. In Philippians 1.19, Paul talks about the work of the Spirit helping him in his suffering. In Galatians 5.16, there's a promise that you, will, you, don't, you won't live life in the flesh, rejecting God or against God, but instead God will bear fruit in your life. What a rich image, by the way. That's why all this leads to prayer. God, work this out in my life, this life lived with you and for you. 1 John 4, you can even discern truth from falsehood in the power of the Spirit. Got your Bible, got God on your side. You can decide, you can actually read the Scriptures and say, that's not right, this is right, and this is not right. You can actually believe in doctrinal soundness in the power of the Spirit. Leading to Romans 8.23, where because you have the first fruits of the Spirit, you can yearn for the world waiting to be redeemed. 
Can I conclude? I think a lot of us can be quite hardened to God in many ways. But the Gospel says, no condemnation for you. But this is a door that opens up to a life where God moves and changes you. That means, by the way, there are some things we tell ourselves that simply aren't true. Here are some. I'll just be brief on this. Here are some. What I'm about to tell you, by the way, is not self-help, but truth-telling. Here's some things. He said, I deserve to be punished. But because of the work of Christ on the cross and the indwelling and the work of the Spirit, you can say to yourself, for me, no condemnation. Take that on board. You might say something like, I can't live the Christian life. But with the Spirit, I can and I will. Especially together with other believers, we can do it. You say, I'm hopeless. But with the power of the Spirit, I'm hope-filled. You say, I'll never change, but God's Spirit can change me. You say, I go to church, I just feel different from everybody else. But the truth is, the unity I have is in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 3, the bond of the Spirit. You say, I just can't face the awful truth about myself. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about here. But in Christ, in the Spirit, I'm a new creation. That's not an awful truth. It's a beautiful one. You say, I'm a product of the past. But in the Spirit, I'm a product of the cross. You say, if it's got to happen, then I've got to make it happen. But how about in the Spirit? God bears fruit in your life. Only he can make it happen. You say, if I change my behaviour, it's going to change me in person. I don't want to do that. How about, if I change my beliefs, according to what we've read today, that will change the behaviours that need to change. And you say, but I'm unworthy to be loved and accepted. But because of the work of Christ, I am loved and accepted. So what's it going to be? It's, by the way, it's too good, this life. In the spirit, are you going to be willing to change soft to him, soft hearts to him, content, yes, but not complacent? Will you let him inject the work of the spirit into your life to change and shape you? Let me pray. Our Father, we pray that the spirit might move and change us. We acknowledge, because, we because many of us declare that Jesus Christ is Lord, that we have your spirit and that we have no condemnation in Christ. Father, we pray that that will mean that we have an obligation to live the life according to the Spirit, according to the way you planned it. Father, move within us to bear fruit. Move within us, we beg you, in Christ's name. Amen.